Now hear a reading from Mark 10, verses 17 to 31. Now as Jesus was starting out on his way, someone ran up to him, fell on his knees and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. The man said to him, Teacher, I have wholeheartedly obeyed all these laws since my youth. As Jesus looked at him, he felt love for him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell whatever you have and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But at this statement, the man looked sad and went away sorrowful, for he was very rich. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at these words, but again Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and replied, This is impossible for mere humans, but not for God. All things are possible for God. Peter began to speak to him, Look, we've left everything to follow you. Jesus said, Look, I tell you the truth. There is no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive in this age a hundred times as much homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, all with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Father, in this moment, we're listening to you. Uh, hopefully this whole service we're listening to you. But right now, we intentionally open ourselves to you. We've just heard this bit of scripture speak to us about it. Father, we acknowledge that this passage is challenging. Uh, it should be very challenging to us, and I don't want to soften it. I don't want to um, excuse it. I don't want to work around it or justify our um, the many ways we disobey your words here. So have your way, Lord, in the preaching of the words so that we could hear what you're saying. We could have ears to hear, eyes to see, 
hearts to believe. Let us be transformed in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you just heard it. This is a famous passage, obviously, and let me state the obvious about it. This is a very challenging passage for American suburban Christians, and it should be. Y'all, we make um, a tunnel vision, but if, if you make $30,000 a year, you have a higher income than 95% of the world's population if you make $30,000 a year. If you make $30,000 a year and are supporting three kids on your own, you have a higher income than 80% of the world's population. We, we, uh, we don't realize how wealthy we are. If you are able to live in South Denver and afford a bus pass, you have more convenience, comfort, safety, and luxury than King Solomon did at the height of his power. He could not have imagined what you have. The infrastructure that you take for granted, the, 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 a room being a comfortable temperature when it's going to be 90 degrees outside, roads that are smooth and safe to travel. We have, we have so much, you guys. This passage should challenge us. This passage should especially challenge those of you who have been good Christians for a long time, who have obeyed the commandments. That same list, I think a lot of people in this room could say, at least since your conversion, you could say, yeah, I've obeyed that list all the whole time. I've honored my parents, I haven't stolen, you know, I haven't murdered, right? We, we could probably say with this man that we've done the right stuff, or at least not done the wrong stuff. When Jesus speaks to this man, we in Littleton should rightly hear him speaking to us. And I, I know that's obvious. But I wonder who, in, in all honesty, when you hear this, wouldn't respond the same way this guy does. I'm, I personally would be thinking of reasons why Jesus' command didn't make sense, why it was unethical. Well, gosh, I mean, it, I have a family to look after. That's my first responsibility, isn't it? And then, and then of course, you know, we, we understand that if we just liquid all our stuff and give it away, that dramatically limits a lifetime worth of potential giving and on and on and on. We we do these gymnastics to try to work our way around this passage. So it's obvious this passage is challenging to us. What's less obvious is that this passage would have been incredibly encouraging to the initial group of people that Mark was writing his gospel for. He was writing his gospel for believers who were in Rome, who were facing growing, intense, terrifying persecution. They knew people who were being sent to the Colosseum, who were being fed to wild beasts. They were losing their livelihoods. They were literally having to give up all of their privileges if they wanted to remain faithful to Jesus. And Jesus says in this passage exactly what they need to hear. That 
anyone who's given all of that up can expect a hundredfold. What an encouragement to them. Whatever this passage is about, it's actually not a passage about poverty alleviation. Um, There's a lot in Scripture that urges God's people to be for the poor, with the poor, finding ways to support the poor. That is absolutely a command for Christians. That's something that we want to obey as a church, and that's not what this passage is about. This passage is about the question that this man raises. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's what this passage is about. Now that phrase, eternal life, is, I've got it on screen here, the next slide. Uh, that phrase is zoen aeonion, all right? That's terrible pronunciation of Greek, you seminarians. But what that is about is the life of the age or the life of the age to come. And in the Jewish mindset, there were sort of two ages. There was the present age and there was the age to come. And there's this idea that in the age to come, God will have made everything right. It's what the prophets looked forward to. You know, the the lion will lay down with the lamb. The trees will, will constantly produce wonderful fruit. There will be peace everywhere and all of the nations will stream to Mount Zion and, you know, the, and find the perfect order in being part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Israel restored to its place, and this man wants to make sure that he's got a plot of land in the age to come, so to speak. That's what he's after. And Jesus teaches him a really hard lesson about inheriting that life. He inherits it through surrender. He has to surrender his defenses. He has to surrender his security. He has to surrender his reputation. He has to surrender all of it. If anyone here is a fan of the 19th century South African pastor and author Andrew Murray, you might notice in my outline that I've borrowed a lot from from, uh, his book called Absolute Surrender. Here's the deal about surrender that Jesus lays out in this passage. He expects your surrender He empowers your surrender, and he enjoys your surrender. I even made it all start with E. He expects, empowers, and enjoys your surrender. What do I mean when I say Jesus expects your surrender? All right, I've actually muddied the waters by saying it that way. It's a little bit confusing. If you hear Jesus well when he's talking to this guy, He is not actually giving him a command or a challenge. He's not confronting him. Jesus is making this guy an offer of a lifetime. He looks at him. He loves him and says, there's one thing you lack, and I've got it for you. He's offering this to this man. He's offering him something that's beyond his wildest dreams. The reason is because he loves him. When Jesus looks at him, he loves him. That is the only time in the Gospel of Mark that it says Jesus looked at someone and loved like that. 
We say it all the time, Jesus loves you. Bumper stickers and t-shirts and songs, right? We, we sing it. The, of course, we say it all the time. And it's true, all right? The, we see in the life and acts and deeds of Jesus that he does love us. But this is the only time in the Gospel of Mark that it says it like this. That Jesus loves somebody like this. He is not trying to drive this guy away. He loves him. He wants him. He wants to be near him. He doesn't expect your surrender because he wants to dominate you. He expects your surrender because he loves you. Even if your desire to please him is just a tiny glimmer of light in the dark room of all of your other desires, he sees it and he loves it. Uh, Let me explain. Um, Okay, I'm... I'm a pretty jealous um, jerk when it when it comes down to it. I, I am constantly doing the comparison thing, and and there's all sorts of competitions in my head. Some of them I win, most of them I lose. Um, I, I I look at this guy, and he seems pretty arrogant to me in my jealousy. Oh, really? You've kept all the commandments. Good, good for you. I mean, Jesus even added a command into the list that's not the Ten Commandments. Most of what Jesus says, you know, you know the commands and he lists them off. He adds in a new one that's targeting this guy. Do not defraud the poor. Because this guy is wealthy. And generally, as your wealth grows and investments start happening, there's people who are paying interest on loans that you're benefiting from. How did this man acquire his wealth? When people are too confident with Jesus, anyway, he tends to um, uh, bring them back to earth, so to speak. But not this guy. Jesus loves him. He loves him. There's more to why he expects surrender. Jesus is the king. And that's what he presents in this passage. He, He has with himself the very thing this guy is asking for. Did you notice that? It's not, it's not go and sell all your stuff and give it to the poor, then you might inherit the life of the age to come. Go, sell all your stuff, give it to the poor, and follow me. That's how you inherit the life. It's with Jesus. He's got it. When the guy goes away sad, Jesus is bummed how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. He is offering it to this guy right now. He expects surrender because he's come to conquer sin and death and restore creation. He expects it because it's the best thing for us. He's the Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, and Almighty God. So what surrender does Jesus expect? Well, total surrender, absolute surrender. Lay down your arms, give up your defenses. For this guy and probably for a lot of us, that meant he needed to surrender his financial security. Look, this isn't like good, responsible, wise instruction. 
All right, this isn't like, hey, here's how to develop financial stability. He is inviting this guy into poverty. All right. The guy goes away sad because he has a lot of financial security. In his love for this guy, Jesus exposes an unhealthy dependence, an attachment. In modern terms, Jesus exposes an addiction in this guy's life. Really, you say, an addiction, just to being an addiction to his wealth? Well, here's my opinion on addiction, shared with some, but not all. I believe anything can become an addiction, anything. Things that are generally good, like financial stability or verbal affirmation can become addictions just as much as, as, you know, cocaine or pornography. When we know something which, while not an obvious addiction like, like meth, has achieved an unhealthy, addictive position in our life, we, it's because we have realized that you can take everything in, that you love in your life and put it in the place of the man's money in this story and you will find out which thing makes you squirm. All right? How, how can you tell something is an addiction? Let me rephrase that. You can tell something is an addiction if you, if you imagine Jesus asking you to give up that thing and you go away sad. That's how you can tell. Okay. That helps for things that we think are generally good. Uh, I want to recognize that Many people who are going through the journey of an acknowledged addiction are in a very different category. You, you know, if, if you have identified alcohol or another substance or a, a, a dangerous addiction and you say, I can't stop, you would be more than happy to hear Jesus say, get rid of that and come follow me. Like, yeah, but I can't. How? You know, I get it. I get it. That's not quite what this man's money is yet. But I think that after this conversation with this man, his wealth will be like that second thing. It'll be like one of those addictions that you think, I I hate it, but I can't get rid of it. He goes away sad, realizing that that is what's standing between him and the best life that he could live. He is now chained to that thing. So Jesus expects our surrender from those things. He wants you to be free. But how can we be free if we're talking about addictions? How can we be free? Well, Jesus empowers surrender. The man's question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He was good at doing. How can I earn it? Uh, This guy, he... Maybe he just came into the scene, you know, because Jesus just had this really strange conversation where the, the, there were little kids coming to him and the disciples tried to stop them. Jesus gets furious, madder than he's gotten at anyone in all of the Gospels, the, mo- the most angry language Jesus uses in the Gospel of Mark. And he's, he says, let these kids come to me. 
For the kingdom belongs to such as these, and you must receive the kingdom like one of these. The man must have missed that. Right away, here's this guy. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I'm good at things. I'm good at doing. He missed Jesus' message. You don't do anything to inherit it. You receive it. The problem is this guy has done so much, and everyone knows it. All of the disciples know it. Okay, back then, just as today, people can get rich in shady ways. That's true. But back then, just as today, there were those who accumulated wealth and power and influence because they're awesome. <laughs> this guy seems to be one of them. There are some people who just do it right the whole time, and you're like, yeah, good for you. <laughs> you know, if you're me, you're looking for their weakness, but, you know, don't be like me. All right. This type of wealth in the eyes of Jesus' followers is seen as a divine reward. It's seen as something that God has given to him to, to, to say, good job, you did it. And if you think something is a reward, it's especially hard to give up. Let me give you an example. Years ago, a young man came to me. He was in the first year of his marriage, and he was facing the first significant major conflict in his marriage, and it scared him. It was utterly disorienting to him. Now, this guy had grown up deeply enmeshed in the church culture and in the purity culture. Anyone who knows about I Kissed Dating Goodbye, he had read it, all right? And even though he happened to be the type of guy that, you know, apparently all, all the girls seemingly wanted to, you know, kiss dating hello with, um, he resisted, all right? He, he was disciplined. He was among the most disciplined guys I knew when it came to all sorts of stuff in the relational categories, with pornography, the rest. He spoke respectfully of and to women, and he had been told that all of these disciplines, all of this righteousness would lead to a fulfilling marriage. His, he expected his marriage to be a reward for that life that he had lived. And that's kind of the story that we're told, right? It'd be fulfilling spiritually, emotionally, physically. At that moment, his marriage was frustrating to him in all three of those categories. He felt betrayed not only by his wife, but by God, and he was disoriented. What do I do? Well, I've stayed in touch with this guy over the years. Unlike our passage, his journey was not this one-time clarifying conversation with Jesus. It has been a slow lesson over the years. But Jesus' message to him has been the same. There's one thing you lack. If you think your acts of righteousness entitle you to the rewards, it's time to lay down the rewards. It's time to lay them down. Now, I do not mean that this guy decided to leave his wife. Rather, he has walked an incredibly long, at times very painful, journey of recognizing that only Jesus can give him what he expected from her, what he expected from their marriage. 
Jesus has taught him, one thing you lack, abandon your expectations and entitlements in marriage and follow me. And for him, that has looked like laying down his life to serve his wife, his family. Now, the young man in our story, in our passage, is one of those terrible people who's good at everything. He doesn't cut corners. He doesn't double book appointments or accidentally sleep in. He remembers people's names. He gives credit where it's due. He follows through on his commitments. He goes the extra mile. I'm guessing all of this. Not only does he follow the basic commandments, he probably is the type of guy that already gives generously to the poor. He probably obeys those commandments too. In fact, over a lifetime, if this young man retains his possessions, he will be able to give more than this one-time gift of everything that he has. And Jesus wants him to give all of that up. Now, this guy in the story doesn't really illustrate how Jesus empowers surrender because he doesn't surrender. He walks away. From the outside of surrender, it looks like it's totally up to you. And that's how God designed it. Before you've done it, it feels like you're all alone facing this mountain of surrender before you've done it. And the disciples felt that too. How... Are you kidding, Jesus? Who? Who could possibly inherit eternal life? Jesus says, yeah, impossible for people, but possible for God. In fact, Jesus says it is so impossible. It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. Some of you have maybe heard that there was a gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle and that camels had to bow or something to get through it. That's completely false in history. (laughs) Sorry. He's naming the biggest animal they knew about and the smallest hole they knew about. That's how hard it is. That's what he's talking about. It's a ridiculous impossibility. And yet not entirely impossible. He says, with God, it is possible. And Peter and the disciples are living proof. They did leave their livelihoods behind. Peter says they left everything. And guess what? They left everything and they're doing a terrible job at it. Seriously. Like earlier in the chapter, they're arguing about who's the greatest, you guys. Later on in this chapter, they're going to be like, so Jesus, who's going to get to sit at your right and left hand in the kingdom, right? Because like, we're in. Yeah. Like, they're doing a really bad job at it. One of them will betray Jesus overtly, Judas. The rest will abandon him. Years later, this same Peter, having been carried through all of that, will finally understand. He will write in 2 Peter, His divine power has bestowed on us everything necessary for life and godliness through the rich knowledge of the one who has called us by his own glory and excellence. That's the same call that Jesus gave this rich young man. He looks at you, he loves you, and he says, come and follow me. And in that moment, he is offering you everything you need. Finally, Jesus enjoys surrender. Remember what I said at at the beginning? This this passage may be troubling for us. I, I hope it makes you uncomfortable. 
but it is encouraging for Mark's first audience. Late in the first century in Rome, believers were being arrested and tortured because they were Christians. Jesus was not trying to take anything away from this rich man. He was trying to give him what he lacked. This is not a call into misery. It's a call into joy. God designed this world to be a generous gift to you, for you to enjoy. And here's what you did, and here's what I did. Here's what I did this week and what you did this week. You tried to earn what he had already given you. And that, that makes, that's a, a sad thing for the Lord. Our job is to receive. There's an implied humility for Jesus' followers here. He does not say that those who give up all of their stuff will earn a hundredfold in return. No, they'll receive it. Nothing is theirs, and yet everything is theirs. When we surrender our lives and our families to Jesus, he gives us his family. Church, some of you experience that with each other, and I hope more of you will. That we have this family. I've experienced that traveling internationally. I've gone to India. I've gone to, gone to Israel. I've gone to Kenya. I've gone to Indonesia. And each place that I've gone, I've stayed with believers who had no idea who I was, no reason to trust me. But because I shared the name Jesus, they welcomed me into their homes. They fed me generously. They threw parties for me. They introduced me to their friends. Just because I follow Jesus. That's global, baby. Come on. We have, we have received in Christ the largest, kindest, most powerful, most generous family in history. Jesus' enjoyment is his motivation for all that he does. You see, Peter claims that he's doing what this man couldn't do. Jesus, we've left everything. Peter claims to have done that, and he ends up failing at it. He ends up abandoning Jesus. He ends up holding on to some of his security. Come on back in, kids. You can find your parents. Uh, I'm grateful for Tim Keller in many ways, but Tim saw it well in this passage. There is a rich young ruler in this passage who did give up everything and give it to the poor. There's one who did it joyfully and freely and instantly all the way. The true and better rich young ruler, friends, is Jesus. He, he laid down equality with God. He said it's not, he, it was not something that he considered holding onto. Instead, he made himself nothing, took the very form of a servant even to the point of death on the cross. Why did he do that? Listen to these words from Hebrews 12. For the joy set out before him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. For the joy set out before him, one thing Jesus lacked one thing Jesus lacked, just like the rich young ruler in this story. You. That's what he lacked. 
Friends, we celebrate the gospel each week because we couldn't earn it. Our, our, our big brother, our Lord, our King has given up everything to make us part of his overwhelming, generous, joyful family. He did it for you. And that's why we party at this table, no matter what. The only way you can't come to this table is if you think you have earned your way to get here. If you are asking, what must I do to be saved? Wait for a minute. Surrender, empty your hands so that you can receive what he has for you.